Welcome to Women in Venture Capital, a podcast by students for students. I'm Roshvina. And I'm Anvita. And we are from the Harvard Business School. Our guest today is Sam Smith Epsteiner, who's a partner at Innovation Endeavors, a firm that prides itself on driving a super evolution of industry. Sam has been with the firm since 2015, where she started out as an investor. Previously, Sam was a management consultant at Bain & Company and has been a product manager at startups like Neuro, which is into autonomous vehicle delivery, and Aukin into healthcare AI. Sam holds an MBA from the Stanford GSB and a BA in political science from Stanford University. We're extremely delighted to have you on, Sam. Thanks for making it. Yeah, thanks for including me, guys. Happy to be here. Great. So jumping right in, and the first thing we'd love to know from you is what really sparked your interest in finance, given your background in political science? Yeah, I would say it was a very not linear path um, and probably a bigger question than we have time for. Honestly, I like, didn't really have a specific reason or long-term goal, even behind the political science choice. I was just sort of driven by you know what I found interesting, and that was largely motivated by both potential impact and complexity. So I think like the first big leap from political science to finance was definitely a middle stop in management consulting, um, which even that choice was sort of not an obvious one for me. Like I literally did not know what management consulting was when I went to my first interview. It was BCG. It did not go well. Um, so I wound up you know, pursuing it, um, management consulting, after not loving a summer of academic research in political science. Like I had even considered sort of a PhD in the space. Um, and while I didn't think that it was going to be sort of like my long, long-term career path, I, it was a great sort of first move for me in my career. And I learned a ton. I love the problem solving in teams. And then I think the question was like, that's a more natural leap than to finance probably. Um, from there, I thought I would do impact investing, um, sort of merging my business experience in management consulting with my passion for impact and particularly around poverty alleviation. So I did a six-month externship while at Bain working at a social enterprise in Rwanda called Kigali Farms. Um, and I, I loved that experience, but it actually wound up raising a lot of questions for me around the efficacy of scaling change with social enterprises. Um, so ironically, it sort of turned me, I guess, towards the dark side a little bit towards venture. And my interest there is really in, you know, how can we solve hard, you know, previously intractable problems, but with technology that enables us to do so and sort of in an inherently scalable way. And so, Innovation Endeavors is a great fit for me in that way in particular, you know, among venture firms, because we focus um, in a lot of these sort of, you know, more traditional and industrial spaces. And so I think a lot of the work in those spaces is sort of, you know, impactful by nature. In spaces like agriculture and life sciences and manufacturing, they're huge, they're important to the economy, they employ a lot of people. And so it was a really good fit for me. And I'm, you know, incredibly excited about the work we get to do. Um, so I don't actually even think about my job as finance. When I have to sort of bucket myself into that category, I always feel a bit odd about it. To me, it feels much closer to sort of, you know, company building um, and, and working with uh, founders. And, and that's what gets me super excited. That's that's really interesting. And you mentioned the intersection of scale and social impact. Um, and that has been the overarching theme of a lot of cases that we do here at HBS is how do you balance the two? Or if is it like a black and white trade off? Or can you can you have some kind of win win situation in those? So that's really interesting to hear your perspective on. Um, I wanted to ask, how did your time at Innovation Endeavors um, influence your decision to apply to business school? We'd love to hear more about the fun's um, ethos of driving a super evolution. Sure. 
Um, so for context, uh, I spent two years of innovation endeavors before taking a couple of years off to go back to Stanford to business school. And then I returned um, to IE a couple of years ago. I definitely didn't feel like I needed to go back to business school. And as a young firm, like we didn't have a policy around, you know, you have to go at a certain stage and here's why. Um, so for me, the reason to go was really sort of, you know, two things. First, I thought it would be an experience I would never regret sort of broadly, you know, personally growth experiential relationships, um, which I think I can now confirm. Uh, and second, I actually just wanted to sort of experiment with some non-venture options. So in particular, I wanted to think about starting my own company or joining an early stage startup and thinking about product roles. So I tried all of those in different forms. Um, and for me personally, there were definitely pros and cons to all of the options. Uh, and I still have a sweet spot in my heart for potentially starting something someday. Um, but ultimately, I, you know, had really just loved my experience in early stage investing um, at Innovation Endeavors and, and just nothing else really lived up to that. Um, so I decided to sort of follow that through. That's interesting. And, and what's really coming out is that it's it's a journey of discovery and just being on top of almost doing experiments with what you think you like. Um, and I think that, yeah. And I think uh, that's underlying to almost feel promising that, you know, there, there will be a light at the end of the tunnel just to be as cheesy as possible but take away that yeah i mean it'll be a path where you'll try and discover a lot of what you really enjoy and end up at a place where you can see yourself long term and, and great sam that you're uh, almost at a junction of that i uh, would love to dig a little bit in the work and areas of sectors that you're interested in you mentioned you're interested in sectors like logistics construction and you spoke about agriculture earlier as well Curious to know what's exciting about these markets to you, almost from a business standpoint, not just from the social upliftment uh, perspective. And given the pandemic right now, how have you seen these these businesses really pivot and survive in these specific sectors? Yeah, so sure. As you mentioned, you know, I spend a lot of my time, I think I would break it down into three buckets. Uh, first, is sort of all things industrial, especially in manufacturing, supply chains, other spaces like that. Uh, second is agriculture and food. And, and third is really all things climate related which is sort of both a lens into the spaces we already invest in, um, as well as propping up sort of more distinctly new work in areas like climate risk and, and decarbonization broadly. Um, so what's exciting to me about these markets is, I think, the combination of the huge opportunity and potential impact. These markets are large, you know, they fuel our economy, and I think they're increasingly strategic. Actually, the pandemic, I think, has highlighted a lot of that. Um, and in some cases, like in agriculture and manufacturing, you know, they've been largely underserved by emerging technologies like data and automation, but even just like fundamentally just software more broadly. Um, so that combination of, you know, new tools for a space and, you know, known potential of the market gets me really excited. Um, and regarding the pandemic, I think each industry has really had, you know, its own like mini story and evolution over the past year. So, for example, parts of the supply chain, like anything related to, you know, grocery, e-commerce or delivery, for example, has seen such a boon in the past year has been just like a huge accelerant for adoption there. Um, but if you look further up the supply chain, there's been a lot of chaos. So our food supply chain, you know, has historically operated pretty rigidly and they're um, basically just didn't have the required sort of visibility, predictability or flexibility to adapt to a super volatile environment like we saw during the pandemic with so much demand shifting from, you know, food service like restaurants and cafeterias to grocery. Um, and that's why you saw simultaneous, you know, huge food shortages in stores and, you know, dumping of food products on farms. Um, 
And so while this past year has been painful there, we see like the fractures of the pandemic uncovered in the food supply chain as an opportunity to build new tooling. So you can imagine sort of new marketplaces or optimization tools or more flexible production automation, any of which I think would be really exciting and would have been super valuable during the past year. But I think we're going to see just sort of a lot more investment in technology coming out of this, which is exciting. Um, and one particularly compelling example of a company sort of pivoting around the pandemic um, that may be sort of colorful for you guys is um, a company called Farmers Fridge in our portfolio. They offer sort of prepared healthy meals and have tr traditionally done so via strategically located refrigerators and high traffic places like airports or office buildings, these kinds of things. Um, those locations obviously became much less compelling in a COVID world where people aren't flying or going into the office. Um, so Farmers Fridge pivoted to two like, very important distribution channels. First, they doubled down on their hospital work. So they already had some fridges and hospitals, but worked on getting a lot more food to frontline healthcare workers who needed it, which is obviously just sort of mission critical. And the second is that they built a new you know, direct consumer delivery model that has actually gone really well. It was always something they thought about testing down the road, but you know, COVID made it uh, necessary. And so I think that's just one example, but there's a million ways in which companies in our portfolio and we've seen more broadly have had to, you know, whether it's change the product, change the business model, um, or even something more fundamental to sort of meet the moment. That's really interesting. And I think there are, you know, you, we mentioned some of these industries, but I think over the last year, which was a very unusual year uh, for a lot of reasons, but it has also opened a lot of white space opportunity for in a lot of sectors. And whether that's um, the, the innovations you mentioned, or I was talking to an investor in ed tech yesterday, which is another area that's seen a lot of a lot of white space opportunity kind of open up with, um, I think, around 2 billion students and teachers moving online. So uh, definitely an interesting year. Um, I wanted to talk about some of your investments that are focused on machine learning. Um, what vision do you have for future investments in ML? And what objectives do you hope to accomplish, given your position as a VC? Yeah, so there's a, a lot of different ways to look at this. I think the first thing is like what's happening, uh, you know, from the technical side that's interesting. Um, there are some trends that I'm keeping an eye out for here. So one is, you know, meta or composite learning across models. So how do you sort of take learnings from multiple and sort of synthesize them into something that is even sort of better than the parts? Um, the second is around data safety and privacy. There's lots of different versions of solutions to this, whether it's for synthetic data or federated learning, but it's something we're seeing come up more and more, certainly in spaces like healthcare, genomics, uh, financial services. Um, and third is efficiency around, you know, this relates to climate as well, just like we use a ton of compute and as a result energy to run models. And so how can we do this sort of more efficiently um, and be conscientious of that? <clears throat> and there's a continued move to sort of, you know, unsupervised or semi-supervised learning. And then we're seeing more around, I think, explainability and ethics and fairness. Um, although I think you know, how that actually gets sort of used and commercialized is yet to sort of be uh, totally figured out. I think the, the other way to look at this is, um, you know, what you can actually do with all these new tools, like what, a, like in market and in industry, what actually happens. Um, so circling back on an area I spend some time in, I think climate is an area that feels really ripe just because 
So little attention has been put to reducing emissions before. If it wasn't a goal, you weren't optimizing for it. So it's like a whole new problem space to open, basically. Um, this change obviously needs to be you know, fueled by a demand for decreased emissions, whether that's sort of voluntary or compliance driven. But I think there are tons of opportunities to, whether it's sort of increase efficiency of processes, accelerate uh, discovery of new materials, predict disasters better or, you know, optimally manage grids. There's a lot of problems there that are <clears throat> really data rich and sort of ripe for more machine learning. I think another trend I'm seeing like pretty broadly across a lot of spaces is just more complex optimization problems pop up, uh, which like operations research and optimization optimization is done around for a long time. So um, I'm still trying to figure out exactly like what is super novel there. But I think the opportunity is likely in sort of incorporating, you know, new and increased data and in particularly in intelligently figuring out, you know, which branch, branches of a permutation tree are even worth exploring. So what I, one of the things I'm seeing a lot is, you know, we used to optimize this tool or the system every week or every month or every year, some like relatively infrequent cadence. But if we can sort of reduce the compute associated with it, maybe we could do it every two minutes um, instead. And all of a sudden that starts to generate real returns. Um, so seeing it across lots of spaces, whether it's sort of manufacturing or routing or process engineering. Um, but I think that's a, another interesting opportunity area. Um, and maybe lastly, I'd flag just automation generally, which, you know, I say probably everyone would mention, but it's just as we build, you know, more intelligence into systems, we just enable more flexibility of autonomy. And what that enables us to do is bring automation into less and less structured environments. So we start to see penetration moving from, you know, a fully fixed manufacturing line onto a sort of chaotic construction site or a warehouse um, and so on and so forth sort of down the line. Um, so there's a lot of stuff here, but those are sort of a few of the things that I'm thinking most about. That is really interesting, Sam, and you clearly seem passionate about the space and are growing bullish about opportunities that you can see there. Um, a, a quick follow-up on that was curious to know the almost the source or how how do you keep yourself updated with um, such information, right? I mean, machine learning seems to be a niche market. I mean, when I say niche, it's almost at the uh, juncture of being te almost technical versus just business-oriented. Um, I'd love to, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be interested to know that, how would you keep yourself updated with growing technologies like these and not just updated in terms of a headline saying ML is growing, but go deeper into that to really understand what ML does really mean and how is it getting applied across industries and trying to get a hold of such things. So would love your thoughts on what has helped you actually garner this uh, strength and knowledge over time. Totally. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not technical, hence the political science background. So it's definitely an effort. Um, and I think anytime we build a thesis, you know, it's a combination of like bottoms up and top down work. But in this space in particular, I think I'd say when I first started looking at it, when I first joined IE in 2015, I just started going to the academics and like finding postdocs and having coffee chats with them to better understand what they were working on, what they found was interesting. Like it was very hustly and scrappy to begin with. And like that's, that works and it's a good place to start as well. Um, so, yeah, I think like particularly you guys are in business school, like you're on campuses, Harvard, around MIT, that like have a ton of, you know, really interesting research happening. Like you can go exactly, just directly talk to those folks and then learn a lot that way. Um, I also like, I attended NeurIPS um, in 2019 when it was last in person. And that was super helpful for me to just sort of meet a lot of the leading minds, to go to a bunch of the tutorials and talks and all of these kinds of things. So I would say like from the research side, I do try to sort of like inculcate myself in that world and really just like learn from the leading minds there. Um, and then there's the more like bottom up implementation side. 
And a lot of that is just like seeing companies day in and day out and getting a sense for um, what is novel and challenging and where folks are sort of applying the cutting edge of research. And just the more you see of like this optimization theme, this isn't something that I like seen anywhere. It's more just that I've now picked up on like companies here and there across spaces who are all effectively doing the same thing technically, but in different industries. And so some of that is just sort of, you know, bottom up crowdsourcing over time, having seen enough of it, but it definitely helps to sort of marry that with some technical perspective as to what's interesting and why. Um, as someone who's currently recruiting, um, I could not relate more to um, the statement that, you know, I'm also a liberal arts undergrad and then I worked in finance, non-operator. So um, I'm also doing the very scrappy part of research. But at the same time, I think I found that it was um, also pushing me to be way more into the research part of it and learning about the companies. Uh, over time, I found it to be pretty fun. So I totally get what you're saying. Um, and to our listeners who we get a lot of listeners who don't really have one specific background, but we've said this a lot of times to get into VC, you don't necessarily have one specific path, but there's so much information, research reports out there that you can get yourself informed really easily. Um, it's just a question of being passionate about something and putting your time and energy into it. So um, that's, that's really great to, to hear. Totally. Um, so, yeah. So um, I guess one last question before um, Anvita does a, a fun rapid fire round with you. Um, because we are talking about women in venture capital, I would love to hear from you um, about potential obstacles to gender diversity and inclusion that you've noticed during your time in BC. What do you think is needed to address this? So gender and racial diversity have been and still are huge problems in venture, no doubt. I think the numbers on gender diversity are getting better, you know, quite rapidly here, but there's still a lot of work to do and certainly at the more senior levels. Uh, I personally feel really lucky that I've been, you know, incredibly supported by Innovation Endeavors and my partners here, but I, you know, often find and feel that in a lot of the companies I look at and work with, they're really lacking in diversity. And a lot of the spaces I invest in, whether it's sort of deep tech generally or industrials, for example, tend to be pretty male heavy. So I may be the only woman on the board or maybe the team I'm talking to is all male, not even just the founding team, but just the whole team. Um, and there's not, I just don't really think there's a silver bullet here because diversity and especially, you know, the inclusion piece of it are made up of, you know, millions of decentralized decisions every day within venture firms and within companies um, that they fund. But I think one of the things that I've found to be most productive or that I, I'm trying to do um, is really just like vocalizing the desire for change. I think it's important that both VCs and the founders they work with talk about the state of diversity on their teams, you know, very honestly and make a plan to do something different. So when I, as a VC, tell a founder that I work with that I've noticed their team really lacks diversity, which, which I have done, and this is a problem that they need to solve, my hope is that you know, we make the hiring of women and people of color a real priority for them. And it becomes a, you know, board level discussion where it might not have been before. Um, and I think this, you know, works in reverse as well. When founders choose to work with firms that have black and female partners and make that intention known, you start to see changes. Um, so I think that there's a lot we can do in sort of creating accountability, sort of both directions um, and just making sort of verbal commitments to each other and sort of having that, you know, honest conversation. Um, but I mean, to get more women into VC and GP roles just definitely requires sort of more work up and down the pipeline, whether it's 
you know, making the path into VC clearer and more transparent, more accessible, or helping women in associate roles succeed, or obviously, honestly, um, you know, increasing the number of female founders, which is also a huge pipeline for venture partners. Like it's not just sort of up and down the venture path, it's sort of the whole ecosystem. Um, so I'd say it's, it's a lot of little things. Um, and I love what you guys are doing to sort of democratize some of that access. I, like, I wish I had done this. Um, I think it's great. You're doing it now by being part of it, by being on the show right now. So <laughs> that's awesome. Totally. And, and that really means a lot, Sam. And can't agree more on the fact that uh, it is actually correlated. If you get more investors on the side with, who are female and, and more uh, almost culturally diverse, you will have founders who will feel more comfortable trying to pitch in as well. So uh, we've seen that play out as well. Um, thanks so much for being here. We'll hold you for a few more minutes to just wrap up with a quick rapid fire. Yeah. And as the name suggests, just pop out whatever the first thing comes to your mind. And we'll start light. We'll start with almost something uh, funny, if you will. Um, so here we start. Um, are you a cat or a dog person? I love both. Our professors here at HBS tell you, you have to pick a side. You have to pick one. You can't be in the middle. I mean, cats are more efficient, I think. So we're thinking about getting one now because it's low effort to reward ratio. But I think dogs give you more absolute reward. So I want a dog in the long term, but a cat in the near term. Well, I love that. <laughs> uh, if not venture capital, what would your alternate career have been? So many things. I One of the classes I took at the GSB required us to... Um, layouts of like a bunch of different paths and I have so many that I could have done like I've cooked in restaurants I love painting like there's so many just totally different things but I think probably the closest to home is um you know just starting a company or, or joining uh, an early stage startup as a PM awesome which was the last book you read that you were really inspired by so this isn't like an inspirational book per se but I don't know if you guys have read um the three body problem and a sci-fi series around it um but i just found it to be sort of like the most compelling and absorbing and raises a lot of interesting questions about humanity and science and technology and space um and so i think that's the one that sort of stuck with me uh, most recently that's interesting i'm reading sapiens right now which is also on the lines of evolution and just the growth of human uh, kind overall so it's super interesting as well yeah. I'd, love to, I'd love to read the one you just mentioned uh who are the two women you really look up to I think like Melinda Gates and, and Kamala Harris are now two for me. Um, I think just sort of like, you know, incredibly ambitious and impact oriented and far reaching and sort of how they think about the scale of their lives and their careers. So. Plus one to that. Um, and finally, I think I personally believe that you define your own happiness. So you, you, you can have your own definition of happiness. Curious to know what's yours. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's a combination of like the daily joys and the long-term fulfillment um, and really sort of pursuing and balancing both of those. Awesome. That's really well put. That brings us to an end. So thank you so much, Sam. It was a lovely conversation. We really enjoyed it. We hope our listeners will have fun as well. Thanks so much for giving your time. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it.